Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. I have the I have the privilege not of welcoming you, but of uh, sending you off. Those who have survived. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you in yeshiva, having you in our program. Um, I I thought it may be appropriate before the shir begins to begin with the Gemara. The Gemara in Chagiga talks about the father of Rabbi Yaakov, one of the Tanaim, one of the Amoraim, excuse me. And he was traveling on business his whole life, and he never had a chance to be in the base Madrash. He was too busy on his business trips. So he would show up once every three months into the base Madrash. After he returned home, he'd show up for a day of learning. And the Talmudim would mock him. You're a Bar Be'Rav Dechad You show up one day every three months and we're here the whole day plugging away. We're here plugging away at Torah the entire time. And they were scorning him. He felt, uh, he felt insulted. So Amalei Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan stepped in and he defended him. Don't ridicule him. Don't mock him. And he quotes the Pasuk in Yeshaya. Darash. Osi, oti yom yom yidroshun. Oti yom yom yidroshun. Dechibayom darshim, uvalayla in darshim. We pursue the word of Hashem during the day, not during the night. Yom yom yidroshun. And also, why the double Hashem? Eler B'yochanan told all the Tamidim, Lomar lecha, kol ha'osek batara afilu yom echad bashana. If you learn Torah one day in the base Medrash, on an annual basis, in this case a triannual basis, as if you've learned Torah the entire year. So uh, everyone has their trips and their places, Baruch Hashem, and they're all wonderful places to be and to pursue. And then once a year, and now it's become a tradition around Tisha B'Av. We gather from our different walks of life, from our different continents. We study Torah together, not just for a day, but we study for a week, some more, some less. So thank you to all of those who have come, those who are here, those who aren't here. You're all with us in Yeshiva. We're here holding the fort the whole year. Baruch Hashem, we're happy to welcome you. Uh, and we've been in the chayt of Kamsa Bar Kamsa. Everyone's welcome. Those of you who have eaten ragalach, I mean that literally. <laughs> so Avram's career packages itself very neatly into a trilogy. Unlike Yaakov's career, which spans six parashiels, Vayetze through the end of the Sefer, Avram's career covers three. Very neatly packaged. Lech Lecha, Vayer, and Chayisar. And each of the first two are very dramatic and carry very dramatic names as their title, which capture the drama and the narrative within the Parsha. First parsha in the first phase of Avram's saga is departure. The difficulty of departure, severing yourself from past, from homeland, from culture, and from certainty in future, and about embracing and embarking upon an uncertain tomorrow. Second parsha is, of course, encounter. Now that he's already primed religiously and theologically, he can now encounter HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the first time. Previous to this, man had been spoken to by God, had been sworn to, had been punished, but he had never encountered. So the first time that man encounters is a rendezvous between HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Shechina, and human beings. It's the first Gilu Shechina, Vayere Lav Hashem. Parsha begins with revelation on a personal level, and it concludes with revelation, Bahar Hashem Yira'eh. Vayera and Yira'eh. The third Parsha seems a bit odd. It certainly doesn't carry the drama, doesn't carry the excitement, no angels, no mountains, no wars, no visitations from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Seems very humdrum, very domestic, very commonplace. In part, that's the message. I always like to include a story or a little vart in the name of Ravamital, but we'll wait for the end. The message is, is that as much as Avram tries to change the world and reshape human consciousness, and revolutionize human consciousness, he has to attend to domestic duties, to his wife to bury her, and to his son to ensure his legacy and to provide a wife for Yitzchak. So part of it is just balancing the message that career is in everything, as we would say in the 21st century, work-life balance. Trying to maintain a, a proportion between changing the world, ascending mountains, changing history, and assuring domestic bliss, domestic harmony. 
But there's still something a bit odd about this view. And it's odd in part because of the verbosity and the heaviness of the parsha. It's one thing for Avram to bury his, his wife and to dispatch Shliach to discover a wife for Yitzchak. It's another thing to dedicate so many psukin. These two narratives dominate the parsha. And you've got entire mesechtos that hinge upon a letter. As I'll speak about Heter Nedarim, Perech Ba'avir. The entire world of Nedarim, Mesechus Nedarim, is hinged upon a few short sentences, a few short letters in Parshas Matos. And you've got verbiage and outsized narrative. More or less, 20 psukim dedicated to the burial of Sarah, which should be attended to in a pasuk or two. And the entire melodrama and redundancy, as we'll see, of Eliezer's visit, 66, 60, over upwards of 60, depending on where you count and where you end, where it begins, where it ends, but it's close to, it's more than 60. Chazal sends this, and Chazal added one slant to it. We certainly have to accept that slant, as we add additional layers. Chazal have a very famous statement, Yafa si chasan avos mi tarasan shalbanim. You want to understand someone, look at their children. We wear masks in public, no one can see the true self, but our children, people that live amongst us, see our truer selves. And they pick up our true nature, our true virtue, and the way that they reflect that and radiate that teaches us the true measure of a human being. So this is a glance inside of Avraham's home. And the way Eliezer acts is the true Avraham, not the hero standing on top of Har Moriah performing for history. So it's important to hear Eliezer, to witness this Ebed Avraham, to witness to a degree Avraham's interaction with the Bnei Ches. But it still feels anticlimactic. And certainly in the aftermath of the Akedah. If you were scripting the story of Avraham, a movie of Avraham, what better way to conclude the story than that windswept mountain as the sun sets, the ram being snatched from the thicket, Yitzchak heaving a sigh of relief, and then the credits roll. And so many psukim and so much discussion. And if you look carefully, you discern carefully, you'll notice not just excess psukim, or outsized narrative, but also two stories which run parallel to each other. And that's the title of today's shir. Parshas Chayesar incorporates two negotiations. One negotiation over a burial plot between Avraham and the locals, B'nei Chet, Ephron, and a parallel negotiation over a wife for Yitzhak conducted at a distance between Avram's agent, Ebed Avram, who isn't really named, and we'll talk about his naming later, and presumably Rivka's parents and brother, Lavan and Bistuel, who enter the stage of different scenes, enter the the stage of different phases. And there are multiple, multiple parallels between these two negotiations, these two tracks. And I tried to itemize many of them on the table, I have to apologize, one of the pages got, didn't get copied, got redone, but we're, we're fine until we get to the end. You take a look at the first page, page one. There's a table of about five, six, maybe seven parallels between the negotiation of Avram and the locals of Hebron and between Ebed Avram and the locals of Aram Naharayim. Number one, obviously, each of them entails a journey. To negotiate, it's a business trip. Get on a plane, get on a train, and meet the party you're negotiating with. So in each instance, there's a journey. In the instance, oh, thank you. Does, that, does anyone need a sheet? I apologize. Okay, thank you. So there's a couple extra sheets. Okay. In each instance, there's a journey. In the case of the second negotiation, the journey is obvious. The journey is overt. Vayelech, look at the table, left part of the table, source one. Vechol tov adonav biado. There's a journey. And what highlights the journey are the surprise celebrities of this movie. And we'll talk about the surprise celebrities of this movie. First time in history, animals are going to win a supporting actor award. <laughs> because for all the Eliezer's and Besuel's and Lovans and Rivka's, it's the Fashtunkin of camels <laughs> that dominate the stage and keep in mind, they're mentioned 14 times. It's an important number. 14, we'll get back to that number. Camels and camels and camels. 
that they needed to drink is obvious, that Rivka probably provided for them is just as important to show her sensitivity and compassion. But everywhere you turn, the camels are watching. Camels. Part of it is to connote the journey. To travel at a distance, you've got to be able to transport yourself through desert, and camels are the one of the transportations of choice. So the camels convey that ambience, that sense of travel and journey. In the first negotiation of Avraham, the sense of journey is less explicit, it's less overt. But it's latent in the Psukim, and Chazal sensed it as well. The parasha begins, and keep in mind, Avram's very peripatetic, he's very mobile in the end of Vayera. He lives a little bit of Avimelech, before the Akedah, then he moves to Beersheva, and he's, in, he's being hosted by many different people. And then the parasha begins... Look at source number one, the right part of the table. Vayavo Avraham lispod lisarav alivkota. Vayavo. Chazal asked the very famous question, Mehechen Ba. Where was he? There are different interpretations based on the matters. He was bearing his father Terach. But he was somewhere. He was at the Akedah. Regardless of where he was, he journeys to eulogize Sarah and presumably to eulogize and bury her. It's unclear where this eulogy occurs. The details are very vague. The timeline and the geotagging. It's hard to know where it unfolds before. Somehow he arrives in Hebron. At a certain point he's journeyed from somewhere. But the environment of negotiations are set by a journey. There's a travel. You've got to meet and encounter that other. Getting on a plane and traveling to China to negotiate a deal. (laughs) Now as in every negotiation, none of them are immediate. They all unfold and evolve in stages. You lodge your position, your, your counterpart considers, there's a pause, reconsider, conversations. And true to form, each of these negotiations are tripart negotiations, three stages, punctuated by bowing. In each instance, to demarcate the end of phase one, there's a bowing. Now note there's an important difference who they're bowing to and who's bowing, B-O-W, but... But we'll discuss this a bit later. Take a look at table or part number two. In Avram's case, there's the initial encounter with the residents of Shechem, uh, Hebron, excuse me, and they're very generous, and we'll talk about their initial generosity. And then the little square box, Vayakam Avraham, Vayishtachu Lama Aretz Levnechet. He bows his head, acknowledgement, I'll consider the offer. Then he meets Ephraim, and there's another... Very, very troubled negotiation. We'll get to this. Lo Adoni, remember, you don't really offer something by saying no. So it's a very, very confusing negotiation. Lo Adoni. This is the second stage. Avram bows again, not to Ephraim, but Lifnei Amharetz. Then the final stage, in which money is exchanged and the land is acquired. Parallel to that is a tripart negotiation for Rivka's hand in marriage. The first stage takes place at the well. Let's know whose daughter she is. Introduce me to your father. So he's essentially negotiating for hospitality. They can at least be taken into the home. And then he meets Lavan and Betuel. They welcome him in. He makes his point, his long-winded repetition of the story, which we'll relate to. They acquiesce. He bows. That punctuates and divides that second stage. Of course, the final stage is timing. The next morning, they've already acquiesced, but maybe she wants to stay a year, maybe two years. And then, of course, she agrees to travel immediately to an unknown land. So all of a sudden you've got two negotiations, each of which is prompted by a journey, and each of which unfolds in three stages, with each stage punctuated by a pause in the form of bowing. Now, that, to indicate that these negotiations are of gravitas, and they're, not, they're faithful, they're not negotiating where you should sit for the next year in the Herzog program, but they're important negotiations, they take place in important locations. Municipal locations, judicial locations... They're not conducted in private, and they're not conducted on the lark or on a whim, but they're conducted, there's a central location, what we would call the courthouse, the municipal building. Of course, in those days, there were gates of the city, in the case of Ephraim. 
Look at source number three. Ve'efron yoshev b'toch b'nechet, v'yan efron achiti on the table. L'chol bo'e shar iro. So he sits somewhere. It's not clear where he's sitting. It's again page one. I'm sorry, it's, it's the first table, source three. That's just page one. Chazal, fill in the blanks. That word, betoch shar iro, has a very judicial tone to it. Shoftim v'sholtrim titen l'cha b'chol shi'arecha. So if he's sitting in the gates, I just want to make sure you have it. Uh, okay, so that's the back of side one. I'm sorry, my sheet's a little more condensed. So that's the back of side one. He's sitting in the gates of the city. Chazal say that day he was appointed a leader, a judge, municipal leader, but at every point, it's, this is taking place in a municipal or cultural landmark. Yoshev betoch chobo eishar ira. And of course, Eliezer encounters, or Ebed Avram encounters Rivka, at the well. This is really the first well meeting of many well meetings and well encounters that will take place in Vayetze, that will take place in Parsha Shmos between Moshe and his future wife. So this is the first time that people meet at a well. And keep in mind, the well is probably something, a mix between a bar and the social setting. People come to draw water and also to socialize and interact, exchange ideas, like the Kiddush. You know, Kiddush on Shabbos. So they, get to, they go to the well. Now, being that these are negotiations, typically the way you begin a negotiation, you don't launch right into the details. It's apt to be contentious. It's apt to be adversarial. Each side has their position. And you've got to iron out a compromise. You've got to iron out one side has to convince the other. So you typically begin the negotiations through niceties and exchanging pleasantries. How are you? Have you been? Having a nice day? And then the battle begins. In this case as well, there's an exchange of pleasantries. Avram is initially greeted by Shma'enu Adoni, Nesia Lokim Atabetochenu, Bimimchar Kvareinu Kvaras Mesecha. They greet him. You're a prince of God. You're a known celebrity. And similarly, at least when he meets Lavan, interestingly he doesn't meet Betuel first, but source number four, towards the left, he is greeted, Bo Baruch Hashem, Lama Tamod Bachutz, Ve'onuchi Piniti Habayit. So the guest is welcomed. Avram is welcomed with the phrase, Nesi Elokim. And Eliezer is welcomed. Do you have that? Is that source number, source number four in the back? I'll try to use your sheet as well. Hold both of them together. Now, take a look at the first page. First page, the back side, it should be number four. Mishabchim Arachim. Okay. Yeah, no, under Dim Yarnot. I'm sorry. Does anyone have, again, first page, back side, there should be a number four? More or less. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to use the Tanakh if that's easier. I tried to make a table. If you take a look at the Tanakh, if you have the Pasuk, I'll read the Pesukim. Um, source, um, Parach of Gimel, Pasuk Vav, Nesi Elokim Whereas, Lavan greets Evan Avram, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, Vayomer Bo Baruch Hashem, Lamatamor Bachutz. So in each case, before the negotiations begin, the exchange of pleasantries. As all of you know, when you start a negotiation, you don't always meet the real determiner, the real, the big boss. You first have to meet the intermediaries, the secretaries, the second-hand people. And then if your position and if your offer is legitimate, they'll pass you over to the person who will ultimately make the decision. And that's normal with negotiations. You work your way up the corporate ladder. You work your way up the food chain. That same environment exists in each of these negotiations. Avram travels to Hebron. His first encounter is with the Benechite. And they're very hospitable, very generous, very cooperative. But he knows the person really calling the shots, whose agreement he really has to solicit, is Ephraim. And his first phase is just to get an audience with Ephraim. Shmauni, Ufigurli, Ephraim ben Socha. Again, it's number, if, you have, if the sheets are there, it's number six, but anyone's guess if you can find it. That same environment plays out between Eliezer, the Ebed Avram, because in his mind, at least, the person calling the shots will be Rivka's father. 
So he has to gain access to Rivka's father, Rivka's brother, the males in the family. But he encounters the female. So that first encounter is about trying to gain access and be invited home to the house of Lavan and Betuel. It's number, on your page, if you have the page, it's number six, but it's Pasuk Chav Gimel in the Tanakh, Bat so that same sense of trying to gain access to the boss, to the authority figure, unfolds in both instances. So we've covered the journey and the camels. We've covered the staged nature of these negotiations. We've covered the location. We've covered the compliments and the pleasantries. We've covered the intermediaries. People are watching, as I mentioned. There are people that are watching. These don't take place in private. So if you look at number seven, if you have it, but if you don't have it, it's fine because it's not really a Pasuk. The word B'nei Chet, we talked about the camels appearing 14 times. The word B'nei Chet appear 10 times. And Chazal notice, that this is 10 times in 20 Psukim. So Chazal liken it to Aseris Adibros, but so the B'nei Chet are always watching. Wherever you turn, Benechet are watching this negotiation. We'll talk about their ubiquity a little bit later. And of course, the people or beings that are watching, the, uh, the living creatures that are watching the negotiations between Eliezer, Ebed Avram, or Ebed Avram, and Betuel are the camels. And they appear 14 times. So there's an environment. People are watching important locations, phase negotiations, exchanges of compliments. Of course, there's one major issue that runs parallel between the two, that the heart of every negotiation is money, and money rules all. And in Avram's negotiation, obviously the money becomes a point of contention, or at least ambiguity, who's passing the money to whom. Half of Mesechus Kedushin is based on this section. Kicha, kicha, Mr. Avram. In the instance of Eliezer, it's not only money, but it's gets. So in Pasuk Lamed, I'll just read from the Pasuk, but you can follow on the table if you can find it. Perach of Dalet, Vahi Kirota Tanezem, Etatzmidim, Love and Witnesses, the Earrings, Pasuk Chabet, Vahikach Eishanezem Zahab, Beka Mishkalosh, Neitzvidim Al Yada, Surazav Mishkalam. Very, very deliberate description of how much these jewelry weighed, their ornamental value, the material and precious metal they were composed of. And then, towards the end of the negotiation, when they acquiesce, Pasuk Nun Gimel, Vayatzei HaEved Klei Chesef, Uchlei Zahav, Uvegadim, Vayitain L'Rifka, Migdanot Natan L'Yachiyah, Uleima. So evidently, by scripting these two negotiations and all the parallels, all the six or seven parallels, the Torah is attempting to rivet our attention and our focus on the similarities. But whenever that occurs in Tanakh, in many instances, it's to highlight a difference. Differences are more stark when everything else is the same and identical. Then there's this one glaring difference. And it's only the parity between the two that helps accentuate the difference. The parallel between the two. That helps accentuate the difference. If we look carefully, as similar as the two negotiations appear, there are important differences. Number one, the Ark. The second negotiation couldn't evolve more favorably. There's a lot of uncertainty. He's in a distant land. He's alone. He's got the onus of an oath, which he offered his owner upon him. He has to find the woman of his owner's family. And at every turn, he meets with success beyond anyone's expectations. He takes a wild gamble, and he succeeds. He's wondering about being accepted into the home that he seeks entry. And not only is he welcome, but the home is empty. He wonders how long and how hard he may have to negotiate for Rivka as he engages in a long soliloquy. And immediately, they agree. No coercion. No difficulty, no contention. You take a quick look towards the end. Vayan Lavan Ubtuel, Parachavdalit Pasaknun, Meashem Yatsa Davar, Lonuchal Daberi Lacha Rautov. Here's our daughter. And it's just a question of timing. Okay, a month, two months. 
Turns out it happens very quickly. The negotiations over that burial plot are a lot more plotting and obstructed. And it's almost concealed hostility and opposition. Because it starts off very generously with a lot of bounty and a lot of enthusiasm. In the beginning of Perachav Gimel, Understand Avraham's role. They're willing to offer him any single burial site you'd like. In fact, he asks to bury one. They offer multiple. Kivar et mitecha. Maybe you have other people you need to bury. Maybe we can help you out. Mitecha. But as it evolves, it goes south. There's a lot of obstruction and it's plotting. It's unclear between Avraham and Ephron, what money will be exchanged. And Chazal sensed this as well. I'm looking at this page. I wonder if you have it, but if you don't. Do you have... Um, it's a, you have, you have, if you have three pages, which I do on this one, it would be the back of page two. If you have three pages, it would be a table... Entitled Yachas Ben Dibor Lemaisa. Essentially, Ephron speaks a good game. He offers the world, and he doesn't back up any of his communication with action. So I'll read the Gemara. The Gemara says in Bava Metziah Pezayin, Meikarektiv Arba Amoshekel Kesef. In the beginning, Ephron is very dismissive. You want to pay me, you don't want to pay me. So in Chazal's mind, the initial offer of Ephron is pay me 400 pesos. Apologize to any South Africans. It's 400 rand. But then it becomes four hundred dollars, the four hundred pounds, over la socher. Initially, he expects arbamio shekel kesef. Ultimately, he demands over la socher. So Chazal are pinpointing this specific difference. But in general, there's tremendous generosity at the outset of these negotiations, and then it becomes very torturous, very contentious. In Chazal's language, and I'll read you the language, Rishayim. Omrim Harbei Ve'afinu Mi'at Einam Osim. You speak a big game and you don't back it up at all with action. And who is the paradigm, the poster boy? Me'ephron. So Ephron becomes this caricature of blowing hot air, promising the world and providing nothing. Yes. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Very good. Very good. We'll get to that for sure. Another indicator as to how plotting that first negotiation is, is one word that keeps resurfacing. Again, if you have your table, if you have page, it would be page two on the back. But if not, I'll read for you the various iterations. There's one word that dominates the negotiations, and that's the word shmi'ah. Pasuk Vav, Shma'enu Aduni. Pasuk, this is Perech of Gimel. Shma'enu Aduni, Pasuk Vav, Nesiyah Lokiyam Atah Betochenu. Pasuk Chet, Shma'uni Ufiguli Be'efron Ben Salchar. A little bit later, Pasuk Yud, Ve'efron Yoshe Betoch Ben Echeit, Vayan Efron Achitit Avram Be'oznei Ben Echeit. People are listening. Be'oznei Ben Echeit, the end of Pasuk Tezayin, actually that's Tezayin, seven, eight times the word Shma'ini, Shma'uni, Vayishma, Be'oznei B'nechet, you have a sense that communication has broken down. 
When people are talking to one another, I hate it when my Israeli kids say, listen, Abba. But they really mean to say, shmaba, shmaba. But it comes across as very aggressive. It's very, listen, you're talking to me. You don't have to tell me to listen. I'm right here. Shma, shma. But typically, when people break down, when the communication breaks down, you've got to draw attention, ask people to listen, create channels of communication. And there's this constant sense, shma'ini adoni, shma'uni, figuli. You're talking to each other. You don't have to ask them to listen. It's obvious. But people just aren't on the same page. There's a wide gap between what Avram solicits and what Ephraim's willing to concede. Another indicator of the deteriorating negotiations is a very, very interesting wordplay that I alluded to before. Keep in mind that Ephraim has already offered the land. Pasekut Aleph, lo, Adonishwaini. Who begins the concession with the word no? It's a backwards conversation. No, I'll give you the land. Yes, I'll give you the land. So I'll try to interpret no, I'll give you for this reason, for that reason. But lo, and keep in mind, Ephron is merely adopting that word from his local neighbors because when they offered it, they also spoke in negative. Pasuk Vav, at the end of Pasuk Vav, we won't withhold, rather than we'll offer it. Avraham senses this, and he ultimately tries to convert the word low by changing a letter. In Pasuk Yudgimel, I like your word, change the Aleph to a Vav, and then we're in business. So he speaks a big game. He offers little. It's very, very obstructed and contentious as opposed to the second negotiations which are absolutely dynamic and spectacularly successful. But the differences are not just the arc, but the pace. How long does Ebed Avram remain in Aram Naraim? A day. He's traveled expecting a half a year's journey or half a year's sojourn convincing. It's lightning fast. The timeline of Avram's negotiations are very, or Avram's negotiations with the people of Hebron are very hard to determine. It's unclear. But the offset and the discrepancy between the pace is very clear by the discrepancy between two words. There's one word, and I wonder if you have it. If you don't, I'll read it. But there's one word. Let me find it on the pages that at least I have. There's one word. It, it would be on page three, the end of the table. This would be the last section of the table. It looks like this, just the top of the table on the front side of page three. The one, right, Vayakam. So if you look at the left side of that table, everything at that well and in Aram Naharayim happens at lightning Paste speed. He runs, she runs, Lavan runs. Everyone's sprinting. It's Rio Olympics. Everyone's trying to get gold. And keep in mind that when she draws the water, she hurries. Now, that also has to be seen in the context of Avraham's um, vigor and rapidity. And we learn Zriza Makdim Lemitsos in the time that Avram runs, and Avram runs legendarily in the beginning of Vayera. Vayar 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 So Eliezer has introduced speed into this process, and they're responding with speed. Whereas the word that dominates the first negotiation is much slower, much heavier, much more protracted. And that's the word Vayakam. The right part of the table. Everyone's getting up and trying to launch a process. When you rise, there's been an inertia. It slows the narrative. The word Vayaratz accelerates the narrative. The word Vayakam slows the pace. And again, we don't know how long it evolved, but it's clear that the pace is very different. So, as parallel as they are, 
there are significant differences. One is the ark. The ark of the second negotiation is a successful and favorable one. It spikes. The ark of the first negotiation, though it starts with promise, ends with contention and adversarial interaction. Number two is the pace. The pace of the second negotiation is rapid and immediate. The first negotiation is very plodding, very tedious. And if you look even more carefully, there are also subtle differences. In every negotiation, one side or one party has leverage, and one party has less leverage. And of course, the art of negotiation is if you don't have leverage, to hide that fact. (laughs) Make believe you have leverage. But the person with leverage typically directs the direction of the negotiation. And if you look carefully, there are many differences between who seems to be in the driver's seat, or as we say in Hebrew, in the pilot seat, and who seems to be dragged along for the negotiations. Number one, I'll just read it from the Psukim. Who introduces themselves to whom? Typically, the person with leverage sits passively, waits passively, and, hello, my name is, I'm applying for a job, I'm soliciting the following need. In the case of Avram's negotiation, he introduces himself first. Geravitoshav Anochim Machem. I have it on page two, front side. Mi Metsiget, that's mo number one under Hevdelim. Geravitoshav Anochim Machem, Tenuli Achuzat Kever. If you don't have it, it's Perich of Gimel, Pasig Gimel, and Dalit. Whereas in Eliezer's instance, the Evan Avram, he inquires, it's not Perich of Dalit, Pasig of Gimel, and Chavdalit. I'll read the Psukim, you can follow. Bat Miat. And she says, And astonishingly, she invites him in anonymously. He doesn't introduce himself. She has no clue who this man is. But evidently, he has a swagger, or as the teenagers say, he has swag. And he's invited in, and they're confident that he deserves a place at the table. And what's interesting is if you look through those psukim, he's never really introduced during the initial stages of his entry. He's not introduced to Lavan and Betuel until he decides to present himself. And even the Torah, remember his name is submerged throughout the entire narrative. He's Ebed Avram, but he's even more anonymous during the initial stages. He isn't even referred to as Ebed Avram. In that initial stage, he's just referred to as Aish. John Doe. So if you start from Pasuk Chafalif, V'ha'ish mishta'ela, V'ha'ikasher kilu agmalim, V'ha'yaretz lavan el ha'ish, Pasuk lamed, V'ha'yavo el ha'ish, Pasuk lamed beis, V'ha'yavo ha'ish. So he doesn't bother to do it. Why should he? He's direct. As odd as it sounds, he wants to solicit Rivka's acquiescence and agreement, but he's just an ish, and he's directing the negotiations. Introduce yourself to me, and then I'll see whether we have something to talk about. We have common ground. It's not just negotiations. It's not just who introduces themselves first, but who approaches whom. There's an old interview trick. It's to conduct interviews for entrance into the yeshiva. I never used it, but I heard of it. Where the interviewer sits with his back to the window, so that the sun shines on the interviewee. <laughs> so who's settled in their comfortable seat? And who approaches whom? So in the case of Avraham, again, this is number two on the, that table on page two, Ephron Yoshev Bitoch Benechet, Parach of Gimel Pasuk Yud. Ephron is sitting in his Shar Iro, and Avraham has to approach him and beg and solicit so Ephron sits and Avram approaches. In the second negotiation, Perach of Dalit Pasig Mem Gimel, Hamayim, that center point is occupied by the Ebed Avram, She has to perform for me. She has to enter my office, state her case, even though he's the solicitor. So the negotiations are being directed with confidence, and it's not just these two particular sukkim. It's the over, it's the overall ambience of who's controlling the flow, who's dictating the terms. 
And it comes to a head where in Pasuk Perch of Gimel, Pasuk Lama Gimel, they're very hospitable. They offer him food, which is the typical MO of hosting guests in Sefer Bracious. Avraham, Lot, Malkit Tzedek. Everyone's offering food. Va Yusam Mifanav Lechol, Parasakhavdalit Pasaklamid Gimel. He holds his hand up. Vayoma. La ochal. Arasherti Bharti Dvarai. I want to speak first. That's chutzpah. You're a guest. You're being invited to someone's office to negotiate. You obviously you drink, you take a drink, you obviously your coffee. No. Hold off on your coffee. I've got my statement. I want a statement it is. So it's clear that it's not just the arc and the pace that are different, but it's who's in control of these negotiations and who is being dragged along. And of course, the food being offered to Ebed Avram and Avram himself goes hungry during who knows how many stages of negotiations because no one has the decency to offer him a cup of water or some food. So evidently, evidently, there's something afoot here. There's some message the Torah intends to deliver the cumulative effect of the verbiage, the elongated narrative, the parallels, the six or seven parallels between the negotiations, but of course the differences. And the answer, of course, is as follows. There's something deeper to these negotiations. It's not about a burial plot, it's not about a wife. And that's why it incorporates or it occupies that third part of Avram's trilogy, because it's Avram cementing his legacy and his mission. And these are just facades for something deeper. Avram has two agendas. His first agenda is theological, to disseminate two brave new ideas. Monotheism, the belief in an invisible, transcendent, unknowable God. Until then, man had worshipped planets, seas, oceans, trees, molten images. And Avraham introduces a brave new idea that God is indescribable. And not only is he unknowable, you can actually love an unknowable item, being, which is an incredible, incredible challenge, very challenging intellectual and emotional religion to not just believe at a distance, but to love that God and fear that God. And, of course, his second challenge is not just to introduce monotheism, but morality. To create a world of ethics, compassion, care, prosperity. Certainly in the wake of complete moral disintegration, complete moral dysfunction, witness in stone, witness in the Dora Mabal, witness in those endless wars of bloodshed and Parshas Lech Lecha. He wants to revamp a world in two images. A world of monotheism and a world of morality. And if we're honest with ourselves, he hasn't really yet succeeded on either front. He's developed a small cadre, and it's anyone's guess how many people associated with that. There's certain individuals who seem to be affected by him, those friends who host him, it's anyone's guess how engaged Avimelech was ideologically in the end of Parshas Vayera, are these confidential military arrangements, are they cultural exchanges? But he hasn't succeeded in spreading this idea of monotheism. And in fact, his first debut was a debacle. He has that opportunity to descend to Mitzrayim and Lech Lecha, change a world of heathen pagan addiction into a monotheistic world, and he's scored, he's evicted from the country because he's caught telling a lie. This trip to Aram Naharayim is not just to find a wife for Yitzchak. It's the unification of families and it's an attempt to spread the ideas and the gospel of his theology beyond the borders of Israel and in particular the prodigal son has returned. He's starting from the beginning. This is the land he departed from. These are his family. Charity starts at home. Theology starts at home. And hopefully he can impress as a start starting this revolution he can impress his family with those ideas. Now notice he's quite aware of this because twice when he dispatches his servant, Pasuk Dalit, Parachav Dalit, Ki im el arzi el mola he doesn't just direct him on ways, give him the address of where Lavan lives. But this is my homeland. 
This is the place I left, and he repeats that later. Pasuk Zion, Parachav Dalat Hashem Alokei Hashemayim, Asher Lakachani Mibeit Avi Yom Eretz Moladeti. There's nostalgia, which is understandable, but there's a sense of I want to try to influence my family. Now, I mentioned before that the camels appear 14 times, and Bnei Chais, Bnei Chait appear 12 to, uh, 10 times. But there's also another word which appears 14 times, parallel to the camels. This is the parasha with the highest density of the name of Hashem. The name of Hashem appears 14 times, beginning with Eliezer. I, I even I, I, you can almost read every pasuk. Um, I'll start with. Um, um, that's pasuk chavav. Baruch Hashem. 14 times within the proceedings, the name of Hashem appears. Hashem berachet adoni meod. Pasuk Lamed Hey, Lavan and Betuel, Me Hashem Yetza Davar, Pasuk Memched, Vreshtachabel Hashem. You'll have to trust me on this because the table's going to come out 14 times. And keep in mind the parallel to the camels. And I'll talk about that in a moment because it's an important parallel. What do the camels and Akadosh Baruch Hu's name have in common? So Leezer is constantly mentioning the name of Akadosh Baruch Hu. And intriguingly, this is the first time that a non-Jew submits to the will of Hashem. The notion of a God had already been conceived. Malkitzedek appreciates Avraham, Vuhu Kohen, Le'elelion. The people of Hebron, Nesia, Lokim, Atabitochinu. But this is a moment in theological history. Pasuk Nun. After Eliezer's, after the Ever Avram's speech, Vayan Lavan Uftuel Vayomar Vayomru Mehashem Yatsadavar. This is an amazing moment. The first time that a non Jew submits to the will of Akadish Barhu, volitionally. Notice, and the contrast to Ephron, Lo Nuchalda Berilacharauta, we have nothing to say. <laughs> Ephron is long winded, and they say nothing. Ephron one second is a lot of speech and no action. And this also explains, of course, they've mentioned Hashem's name. Just give me a second, I want to finish the point. They've mentioned Hashem's name earlier because they've blessed this Evid when it comes to Bo Hashem. But now they're submitting. They're not just blessing this visitor. They're submitting Hashem Yetzadavar. This also explains an incredibly odd phenomenon in the Parsha. Part of what lends this parsha its length and its girth is a one-off phenomenon. I don't know of any other place in Tanakh where this occurs. Typically in Tanakh, an event unfolds. We as the audience witness it unfolding. The Torah describes it. And then if individuals within that narrative retell the story, so the Pasuk writes, he told her, she told him. Probably the most famous is Haman's downfall. But the Pesukim don't record what Haman told his wife. We know what Haman told his wife because we've seen it unfold. We don't need a repetition of the story. The story unfolds. We witness the events. Here we're treated to a double header. We witness the events unfolding. And then Eliezer, this Ebed Avram, begins to recount the story to Laban and the Pesukim describe what he told and it's the exact same story. And that's what inflates the Parsha. Why repeat the events which we've read already almost identically? The answer is because the event is not just what occurred at the well. The event is presenting it to Lavan and Betuel and watching their acceptance of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's interaction and interdiction. That's the event. There are two events. The well and the response to the well. It's important for us to see to be sitting in the position of Lavan and Betuel and witness their embrace. So we have to sit in their location and watch the events unfold. Because this interaction is not just about a wife, but this interaction is theological. I'm running short of time, so I'll just be very brief. The second agenda of Abraham is not just theological, but it's a wedded agenda. 
and it's moral. Teach the world chesed, teach the world compassion, pity. To paint God as a God of pity and compassion, a Kodesh Baruch was rachanim b'shalom. Man had thought that God was angry, militant, belligerent, bellicose. That's all they had seen. Eviction from Gan Eden, floods, dispersion, plague, suffering, sulfuric acid, raining down on stone. And Avram wants to present HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Avram didn't discover Hashem through science. Avram discovered Hashem because he sensed moral energy in this world. The world could be a centimeter closer to the sun. It would be the same science in play. We'd become incinerated. Avram sensed a world with moral energy supporting life. He craved to understand that source and he wanted to be an agent of that moral delivery. So Avram's second message, people have this confused sense that Avram was bipolar, had two different roles. He was a philosopher and a do-gooder. He was Socrates and Mother Teresa. They were really a fused mission. He understood God as a source of moral energy and he wanted to be an agent of that moral energy. And that is why the undertones of this is not just delivering philosophical or theological input, but also demonstrating chesed. Again, I don't know if you have it, but it's really on the back page, the back of the third page. You can follow in your Tanakh, Perech of Dalit, Pasuk Yudalit. So he solicits a candidate of Chesed. He thanks Hashem. And then when he solicits Rivka's approval, he uses a word that we normally associate with Yaakov in Parshas Vayichi. But it's the Ebed Avram who employs it first. We normally assume that Yaakov introduces that phrase into the Jewish imagination. It's really Ebed Avram. This is a story which is draped and drenching with chesed. And that's where the camels come in. The camels are not just transport mechanisms. The camels carry chal They carry the jewels they carry the clothing, they're agents of chesed. And that's why both the camels and HaKadosh Baruch Hu each appear 14 times. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the word that delivers the theological message. And the camels deliver the moral message, which complements the theological message. So they work in tandem. Hashem's name appears 14 times, and that's the philosophical instruction and lesson that he ever delivers. And part of that instruction are the camels that deliver culture of Adonav Biyadah. Kultur of Adonav Biyadah. And it's more than just chesed, it's also, very briefly, it's also that Avram was so wealthy, was so rich. Because part of Avram's message was, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as a source of moral energy, desires human prosperity, desires human welfare. The march of progress and of human advance is driven by the divine will. That uh, 15 years ago, there was a Middle Eastern historian named Bernard Lewis, who wrote a book called What Went Wrong. He wrote it before 9-11. It was very relevant to 9-11. How did Islamic culture abdicate its superiority in every field to Western civilization? That abdication has led to so much anger and Islamic rage. So he answers the question from a historical standpoint, very cogently. But as a religious thinker, if you see how Kaddish Baruch was kind and compassionate and covetous of human welfare, and you see a world that suffers, you want to reshape that world in the image of your God. It's the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to advance the world. For a Jew, science, technology, advance, welfare, prosperity, they're consistent with worshipping a divine being that's compassionate and kind. If you view God as angry and hostile and full of rage and anger and the world is awry, as Muslims sometimes view, then there's really no impetus for change, for improvement. Because the world is helter-skelter because their God desires it as such. So it's not just the delivery of chesed, but it's also the recognition that this is a man who's wealthy and prosperous and that's not inconsistent with religion. To be religious doesn't mean to walk away from this world and disengage, but to engage and change and deliver your bounty to others. And all of this is summarized, of course, by another word which dominates that agenda and the fulfillment of that agenda because the Kodesh Baruch had promised Avram, Vagad l'shemecha veheye bracha, that there will be brachos associated with you. And everyone, at every turn in this narrative, is delivering a bracha. This is on page 2, 
the front page. Hashem promises Avram Yaseschal Gagadal, Vavarechacha, Vagad Lashanecha, Vayebracha. So in Perachavdal, Pasachav Zayin, Vayomer, Lavan blesses, Vayomer Baruch Hashem. I'm sorry, this is first Ebed Avram. Chavdal, Lamed Aleph, Lavan, Vayomer, Bo Baruch Hashem. Perachavdal, Pasach Lamed Hey, Vashem Berachas Adonim Meod. They dispatch Rivka, Vayevarachu is Rivka. And now, to no one's surprise, not only are human beings involved in Brachos, but Perak, Chavdalit, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Source Base, Part 3, Vayavrech Agmalim. The word Vayavrech literally means they're bent down. When a, when a camel rests, it kneels and you hitch it to the post. But it also means Vayavrech Agmalim. It's a play on words. So that first agenda, theological, moral, is now being exported in Parshas Chayesara. And that process is rapid, quick, successful. And then there's another agenda. And it's not theological, and it's not moral, it's geographic. We're supposed to live in this land. We're supposed to live at Eretz Yisrael and employ that as our basis for disseminating, exporting, Broadcasting our message. That already doesn't go so smoothly. The world is willing to accept the Jewish message. Monotheism, morality, how the Jews have changed the world, how we've reshaped the... That they're all too willing. Nobel Prizes by the truckload. But an extra house in the West Bank, not so quickly. And what's really at stake, as you said, is not a burial site, but this is Avram's first land acquisition. Until now, he's been hosted by a range of candidates, from the Amalkit Sedeks to the King of Stone, to Anashkola Mamre, to Avi Melech. He's lived off of the largesse of others, but now he wants to purchase land. And that's why it's so contentious. As I mentioned, there's a concealed hostility Keep that in mind. There's a difference between overt, explicit hostility and concealed hostility. Everything seems to be very welcoming until you parse it and get beneath the surface. Everything slows down to molasses and everything is contentious. Everything takes time. I mentioned the B'nai Chait and their ubiquity because they're the residents, they're indigenous. And several times they're referred to by a phrase that means one thing in the 21st century but meant a total different thing. They're referred to as Amharats. doesn't mean they were ignorant. Pasuk Zayin, Vayishtachu le'amharats levnechet. Vayishtachu, Pasuk Yudbeis, Abram lefnei Amharats. Vaydaber elefron, beoznei Amharats. Because this is about land. And they're tagged, not just as cultural representatives, but it's their land. Avram wants to purchase it. And it's clear that as much as Avram wants to purchase, they have a completely different idea, even in their most generous moments. Avram introduces himself, Pasuk Dalet, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem, I'll share the land with you. Tenuli achuzas keber imachem, nesiyah lukim ata. Bitochenu, this is Pasuk Vav. Pasuk Tes, Bekesef Malay Yitinanali Bitochechem, Lachuzas Kaver. So essentially, no one's willing to transport, transfer the land to Avram. They're willing to work out some joint or common arrangement. Ephron is very domineering. He reminds Avraham that this is his land. So, when he finally agrees, that Pasuk, which is ambivalent agreement, Vayan Ephron, um, where's the Pasuk, excuse me, Pasuk Yudalaf, La Adonishma'ini, begins by saying no, but listen to me, listen to his description. Hasadeh natatilach, Hamara sherbao, lecha netatia, lenei b'nei ami netatia, okay, we get the point, we know that you're giving it to me. Even in his delivery, he's expressing his ownership, and at best, you can reside alongside and share the land. And then finally, after all these negotiations and counteroffers, protracting, plotting, vayakam, bowing to B'nei Chait, remember, 
Ebed Avram bows to Hashem because this is a theological journey. He has to bow to Amaretz because this is a geographic moment. Both of his bowings to Amaretz. Ephron doesn't even deliver the land. A very weak verb is employed. In Pasuk Yud Zion, after promising Natati, 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 the omniscient narrator describes Vayakam Stay Ephron. Stay Ephron became Avram's. Almost it had to be pried from Ephron's hands. He, he couldn't even deliver it. But some process, beyond anyone's control, delivers the land to Avram. And of course, notice the parallel, because from their standpoint, if you take a look at the last Pasuk of that parasha, Pasuk Chaf, this is what Ephron is willing to concede. He delivers a field and a cave. So the Bnei Chet deliver a field and a crypt. But the omniscient narrator, the narrator of the Pasuk, tells us what's going on behind the scenes. So skip back to Pesukim later. This is not Meit Bnei Chet. This is what's happening behind the scenes. Vayakam stay Ephron asher b'machpila asher l'thnei memre asadeh v'hameara, a field, a cave, v'chol ha'etz, the trees, asher b'chol gvulo, the entire land, saviv, le'avraham, le'mikna, for pasture land, le'enei b'nei chet, against their will. Not me'et b'nei chet, the b'nei chet deliver just land and a burial plot. Le'enei b'nei chet, against their will, defying their stinginess, the land is delivered to Avraham. And that's why these two are paralleled. Because Jews have two agendas. And they're interlocking agendas. But when it comes to soliciting and disseminating our message, which is on display in negotiations with Rivka, everyone is falling over themselves. Happens with lightning speed. We understand this. We understand you've got a message. We understand monotheism. We're happy to introduce your moral code, the Ten Commandments. Look at our world. But when it comes to settling this land, it's a whole different story. And that's why these two negotiations are paralleled, just to draw our attention to the two. So we can realize the offset between the two. And what makes it so challenging is because they're two very different agendas. The second agenda presents itself as very universal. Or Lagoyim, delivering a message to mankind, changing the shape of history, moral, religious, theological history. Seems very universal. The second one seems very parochial and nationalistic, settling land, occupying Eretz Israel. A lot of people today have a hard time merging universalism and nationalism. Those of you who live in this country understand what I mean. Some people are so hyper-nationalist that their views of the other border on xenophobia. Some people are such ultra-humanists that their sense of Jewish identity and pride is so attenuated it's almost indiscernible. And how do you operate as both a universalist and nationalist? We're proud to be nationalists, but we don't advocate our sense of universalism. What makes it even more challenging and more is not just to recognize the two different roles, but that they're interlocking. That in our nationalist agenda, we're acting out a universalist endpoint. When we settle this land, it is to usher in a utopia that will introduce welfare and prosperity for the entire world on their terms. We have no conversion agenda. We're the most universalist nation. Because Christians have a conversion agenda. Islams, Muslims have a conversion agenda. We just int- want to introduce a utopia so to put it differently, if you had 24 hours and you knew you could solve cancer, or you could settle a hilltop in the West Bank, which would you choose? And that's an audacious question. You could relieve suffering for hundreds of millions of people by solving cancer. But that would be the least universalist and least humanist thing you can do. Because if I settle another hilltop, assuming I'm, accelerate, I'm accelerating Mashiach, accelerating utopia, so why should I try to intervene and solve human suffering through human faculty when I can usher in utopia and introduce God's entry into the sphere and relieve suffering broad spectrum for an entire planet. That would be selfish of you to enter the laboratory and solve cancer. The answer is, of course, the balance between supernatural and rational. And we have to maintain that balance. So I as well would enter the laboratory. But at least it's a question. And it reminds us that these 
simple pat descriptions of universalism and nationalism, and where we describe ourselves, are we universal, universalists or nationalists, are corrupt. They're faulty. Because we're both, and we're not both in a separate sense, that we spend half of our time pursuing universal agendas and national, but they're interlocking agendas. To be a Jew is to be proud of your identity, feel selected, pursue that, because you are selected as an emissary of an entire world to advance their needs. So these two negotiations have to be ensconced, have to be embedded in the same parsha. They have to be paralleled, but they have to highlight the differences. So I mentioned before, and I'll send you off just with a Rav Amitel story, about the role of Chayasara in rounding out Avram's career. He'd been so invested career-wise, an emissary, international figure, a world philosopher, agent of moral welfare, now he has to attend to his own domestic needs. So Rav Amitel, and I always like to quote Rav Amitel of the session, because as you know, last week with his six-yard sign, I always fail, that this convocation is the greatest testament to his pioneering imagination and his vision, and always looking down Shemayim, seeing, getting nachas out of what he built. So he was an expert at the art of counterintuition. He always wanted to teach us not to see things by rote in stale fashion, not to allow our minds just to march in tandem, but to see things with a fresh set of eyes and to swivel ideas, to question assumptions and bring fresh new meaning to it. So he would always tell us, you know how people say, at first I tried to change the world. And I realize it's too difficult. So I focus on changing my family. And then that proved to be too difficult. So I just retracted, contracted into my own world, and I focused on changing myself. So Ramitab would raise his finger whenever he would dismiss trivial and prejudice and stereotypical ideas. He would wave his shtayat, shtayat. He'd say, silly, silly. He says, this is the real way it happens. First people try to change themselves. When that becomes too difficult, they try to change their family. <laughs> when that proves too difficult... Then they try to change the world. <laughs> so Avram's already changed the world. Now in the spirit of Ravamital, to a degree, as he's changing the world, he also has to attend to domestic needs. Have a great Shabbat, everyone. Yes, Shabbat, for coming.